So she, she's older than my parents. She knew the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe Tzanchane, who passed away 57 years ago, almost 58 years ago now. So um, the Rebbe lived on President in Kingston on the corner. She lived in a building called 1418. And she would go outside and she would stand on the corner and she would greet people. The Rebbe's mother was very different than the Rebbe's wife. The Rebbe's Chaya Mushka didn't want at all the, the role of, the, of, of Rebbeson. She hated it. She said, my husband's a Rebbe, but I'm not a Rebbeson. That was her line. Um, but the Rebbe's mother was very much a Rebbeson. She had been a Rebbeson of a community. She was the wife of the Rav of Yekaterinoslav, of the Petrovsk, which is a big city. And she would stand on the street corner and say hello to people, you know. And in those days, Crown Heights was not like now. Crown Heights was every kind of from Jew. It was, it was such a mixed neighborhood of Orthodox Jews. From Rochester till, Fla till Flappish, Mamish. Was, there were so many from a Yidin here, every kind, modern Orthodox, Misnagdim, Chassidim, Svadim, Ashkenazim, every type, Hungarians, Pelische, Rushese, Ungarische. And she knew everybody. So she was sitting on the street corner. This is the 50s, and she sees young Lubavitcher couples pushing baby carriages. Now, when you see a young couple looking at baby carriages, it's no big deal. But if you saw a young couple pushing a baby carriage 70 years ago, you could assume that that couple either survived Hitler or Stalin or both as children. In other words, some 10, 12, 15 years before they were living in Russia under the threat of the communists, under the threat of Nazis, or they were American-born, in which case the Yiddishkeit was one of Mesiris Nefesh. And the Rebbe's mother commented, which means in Yiddish and French and English, such fortunate couples. They're the couples of, of, of my son, Zolgazunzain. The Rebbe's in Hana didn't say the Rebbe, she said the Zun, my son. But she addressed him very formally, the Zun Zolgazunzain, my son Shlita, that's how she spoke about it. So you're all the Rebbe's Kinderlach. And uh, every time they read the attendance, you know, it's. It's a beautiful list of beautiful, beautiful names, Kenan Ahare. It should all be healthy and well and successful. Life is good. <laughs> if they wish to want it to be, right? There's always tests. What you want to pass them and you want to succeed, you want bracha and So uh, we it's chay shallow. It's always a good time to give brachas and nachayin. So when I listen to her read that list, that's what I, I I don't know all the names, but I know most of the names. And it's music. Such beautiful list of names. You know, in other words, I'm now a grandfather, right? Yesterday I was you. <laughs> and then I was married with children. Now my children are married with children. And these are the same names again and again, generation after generation. We're supposed to Tisha by the Rebbe. I do this every year. I'm going to describe to you Tisha by the Rebbe step by step, point by point, okay? And I think one of the topics we're going to have is that the day before you go to the Yoyo, uh, we're going to talk about going to the Yoyo, writing Pajanis and writing letters. Aside from that, as far as I was told, and of course, you all know rules are made to be broken. I'm doing Tisha by the Rebbe. Okay? So take notes. Remember, it's good stuff, I think. Um, Tisha by the Rebbe starts Nello, the Shechei Shelo. This is a fascinating fact. The Rebbe had Yechidis, which lasted in, in, a, in a complete way for 25 years and a little bit of a abridged way for 32 years, till 1982, Membeis, the Rebbe stopped, Yechidas, private meetings with people. 
For all of those years, for the first 25 years of the Rebbe's Nesiyas, and then for another seven to like 1982, the Rebbe would see people three times a week, starting 8 o'clock at night, sometimes till the morning. Sometimes the Rebbe would sit 13 or 14 hours in a row, from 8 at night till like 9 or 10 in the morning, without a break. He wouldn't drink tea, he wouldn't drink coffee, he wouldn't go to the bathroom, he'd just sit. A person walked in, a person walked out. The last person who walked into the Rebbe found a man as fresh and as present as the first person. It was really superhuman. Yechidus was unbelievable. Rabbi Groner's children just published the first volume of his journal, of his biography, and they write in the journal that when Rabbi Groner would walk into the Rebbe and say, Yechidus is finished. And the Rebbe would always ask him, nobody else? You sure there's nobody else? He said, nobody else. As soon as the Rebbe knew that there's nobody else coming into him, immediately he would look exhausted. When the people came into the Rebbe, the Rebbe looked, he literally controlled his face. He looked fresh and he was so sharp. He was so there. People who are a little older than I, I didn't have Yechidus. I'm a little too young for that. Who had Yechidus said to me, Yechidus was 30 seconds. It was very short. He said, but it didn't matter how long it was. Because the feeling you had when you walked into the Rebbe for those few seconds in his room, but there was nothing else in the universe but you. He gave you all of his t- attention. That was the feeling of Yechidus. And this went on 11 months a year. What Three, time did it finish? Whenever it was over. So depending on times of the year, in the earlier years it would finish around midnight. Within a few years, from 2 in the morning. By the 1960s, 6 o'clock in the morning was normal. 5 o'clock was normal. Yomtev time, so sometimes Yanti would see people a night after a night after, and go till 10 o'clock in the morning, 14 hours, and the Rebbe wouldn't stop for a glass of water, for nothing, just person after person after person. It was superhuman. They spoke about the most important things in the world. Everybody walked into the Rebbe's room and had the most important conversation he would have in his life, or her life, like, about life, huh? Just random? No. Not like- life is not random. Life is not random. But what, who am I? What am I going to do? How am I going to make myself happy? What's my purpose? You understand? Yechidus was very deep, even for simple people. Kids went into Yechidus. The Rebbe would change them just by his gentleness, just by his ability to connect to people. Yechidus is very important. A person that won Yechidus in his lifetime remembers it. Because it was very, it wasn't because the Rebbe was an important man, but because their experience was very important to them. Elul was no Yechidus. That was the point of the whole speech. Elul, the Rebbe stopped Yechidus. Tishrei, he had Yechidus. Because Tishrei, the guests came, the Rebbe had Yechidus, sometimes day after day after day. But Elul, the Rebbe took off. Elul was officially no Yechidus. Now, as I mentioned before, rules are made to be broken, so there were many occasions where the Rebbe had Yechidus, made exceptions, you know. But the rule was in Elul, the Rebbe stopped seeing people. The Rebbe needed to get ready for the new year. And it's ironic that the day after Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe saw people, but the day before Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe was busy getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, you understand? But Elul, the Rebbe was his month, was the Rebbe's time. The Rebbe went for the new year. Officially, Yechidus stopped the whole, for four weeks. There was no Yechidus. This is number one. The first thing that's negated Rosh Hashanah is this. Um, Number two, during the month of El, the Rebbe would write a letter, No Rebbe did this, really, no Rebbe did this besides our Rebbe. The Rebbe wrote letters to every Jew in the world. 
to every Jew in the world. He didn't write them to Lubavitchers, he didn't write them to Chassidim, he didn't write them to people who come from Lubavitcher homes. He wrote them, El B'nei, El B'nei, are the sons and daughters of Israel, wherever they may be, may God be upon them, and they should live. And there were certain friends of Lubavitch, in quotes, who really didn't like that. Like, who does the Rebbe think? There's stories about Gedele Yisrael. Who does the Rebbe think that he's writing letters to every Jew in the world? And of course, the answer to that question is, the Rebbe knew exactly who he was, and he also knew who other Gedele Yisrael were. And the Rebbe knew that it's important for him to write letters to every Jew in the world. The Rebbe was a universal Rebbe, if there ever was one. And the Rebbe wrote letters to every Jew in the world. And as it was officially, the Rebbe wanted every Yid in the world to get a copy of his letter and to read it in preparation for Yom Tif. The Rebbe wrote letters like that from the first day. The Rebbe became Rebbe, Yud Shvat 51, 1951, Tov Shin Yud Aleph. Probably that Pesach, he already wrote a letter, certainly the following Tishrei, Yud Beis. And every single Yom Tov, before Tishrei and before Pesach, there would be a Mikhtov Kloli, written to all the Jews in the world. This letter had a message for Yom Tov. It also had a practical message, especially in the earlier years when the Rebbe first became Rebbe. In those letters, the Rebbe talked about outreach. You can look at the letters, they're all published. And now, America just gave out in English a beautiful volume, or two volumes, of all the Rebbe's letters translated into English. It's, it's well over 100 letters. I think they're green books, you can buy them. Many of those translations the Rebbe actually edited in English as well. And you could, reading the Rebbe's letters are, are like a toyed onto itself. For the first year, read through, it's 40 years worth of letters. It's a lot of letters. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole Torah about each Yom Tov, about Tishrei and about Pesach. For the first 20 years, there'd be one such letter, till about 1970. After 1970, the Rebbe used to write two. And usually, unless it was Shabbos, the first letter would be dated Chayelo. The second letter would be dated Chofheyel. Chayelo and Chofheyel always the same day of the week, um, as is Yom Kippur, by the way. Um, so the Rebbe read a letter Chayelo and another letter Chofheyel, usually were continuing. So for the first 20 years, he wrote one letter, in the next 20 years, the Rebbe wrote two letters. The way these letters were prepared was the Rebbe's secretary would come into the Rebbe's room. The Rebbe would basically say a sikh. The Rebbe would talk to him like a very formal sikh. He would go out and write it up and prepare it. The Rebbe would edit it. And the Rebbe worked very hard on the letters. The Rebbe's letters the Rebbe wrote worked very, very hard on the Maramakimus and the footnotes. When the Rebbe's letters came out, people sat down and didn't read them. They would study them. They would learn them like it's a piece of gemara. Um, and these letters were very important. And every year, from 1951 or 1952 until Nun Beis, there was a letter or two letters that came out from the Rebbe for each Yom Tif. This is another thing. Number three, the Rebbe always spoke to the women before Rosh Hashanah. Um, in my years, this is a little bit an, of an evolving thing, but in my years, officially the Rebbe spoke to the women three times each year, sometimes there'd be a fourth. But it was always three, and there, it's, it's developed slowly. The three times here the Rebbe spoke to the women were as follows. Number one, before Rosh Hashanah. Before Rosh Hashanah, the women, probably in the beginning they went into the Rebbe's room, I don't know. The Rebbe would meet them in shul, the men would leave the shul, the Rebbe would come downstairs, and all the women, there's many films, the women would fill the whole room, they would, the Rebbe would walk in, the women were all standing, the Rebbe would sit, and the Rebbe would indicate asking the ladies to sit, and of course the ladies would sit, and the girls would stand, and the Rebbe would give them a bracha for the new year. These sikhs, which went on also from 19, I don't know exactly when it started, but it went on until 92, till Nun Beis, used to be shorter. It was mostly a bracha. But over time, they became much longer. 
in my years, in my generation, those sikhs could be half an hour, 40 minutes. And the Rebbe would speak in the Pashtah Shavuah, he would speak on Rambam, whatever he wanted. And there was always a practical lesson and a message for the women, for the new year. And it was full of brachas. I mean, the trademark of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is brachas. I mean, there's videos of the Rebbe standing by his door giving brachas. And you see that he just doesn't want to stop. He's giving brachas and he's closing his door. Nacha brachas, closing his door. The Rebbe gave brachas and brachas and brachas and brachas. This was very special. Never spoke to the women. If Chof Hayalel was Shabbos, then it would be on Chof Gimelel. If Chof Hayalel was not Shabbos, then more or less the date that the Rebbe spoke to the women was the birthday of the world which is Chav Hebiel, this year it's on a Wednesday. So the Rebbe always spoke to the women. Now the other two times I spoke to the women, this is just, this is just to be comprehensive, was in 19, early 50s, the Rebbe made Neshayu B'nai's Chabad. The Rebbe made an organization that women should mobilize themselves for inreach and outreach, called Agudas Neshayu B'nai's Chabad. And the Agudas Neshayu B'nai's Chabad started here in New York in 1955. It started in other places a little bit earlier, but the Rebbe started Neshayu Chabad here in 1955. And the Sheikh Abad was supposed to, they had an organization, they had leaders who were supposed to do different things. And they had two conventions, two annual conventions. There was a winter convention and a spring convention. The winter convention always took place in Ari Hasada. They'd find a city where there were enough Lubavitchers, and in the 1950s there were not that many options. And whoever could afford, and in those days there was not a lot of ladies, later on it became more and more, women would go to wherever the convention took place, and for two or three days they'd be hosted, They'd have lectures, they'd have speeches, they'd have all kinds of stuff um, in one city or another uh, of Arya Sada. It means out of town. The spring convention always took place before Shavuos in Crown Heights. And it was always around the Shabbos. And the highlight of the spring convention of Sheikh Abad was that the Rebbe spoke to the women. So it was usually two or three weeks before Shavuos. Shavuos is Vav Sivan, so it took place at the end of Iyar, after Lagboimir. There'd be a Shabbos, women would gather, and in those years it was a lot of people. You see, what happened was, as soon as they started making the Kinnis Hashluchais, so they, it funneled a lot of the attention from the Nesheikh Chabad Convention, because more than half the women who came to the convention were the Shluchais. Once the Shluchais had their own convention, the Chabbe Shvat. So the, the, the Nesheikh Chabad Convention today is not, Bechlan Nesheikh Chabad today is not what it used to be, because the, the Shluchais had their own organization. Um, but before that, the shluchais and women from all over the world would come to Crown Heights for a Shabbos. And Sunday, the Rebbe would come downstairs and he would speak to the women. And it was before Shavuos. So there was always a Shavuos message. You know, that the women's role, raising the children, and so on and so forth. This was the other time that the Rebbe spoke to the women. The third time that I spoke to the women was actually not to the women. It was to the girls. But they let the women attend. Mrs. Khanagorowitz, she's young enough to remember graduating Beisivka 8th grade when there was no high school and going into the Rebbe's room with her classmates graduates for a brocha. So the 8th grade graduates from Beisivka, going back, you see talking about 50, 60 years ago, I don't know how old, how young she is, but she's certainly a lot older than I am. Um, when she graduated 8th grade, all the girls, like all 12 of them or 8 of them, whatever number of graduates we've got in those days, went into the Rebbe's room and the Rebbe gave them a brocha. And those way, way back, Beisivka did not have a high school. So you finished Beisivka Elementary School, you went to Beis Yaakov. When Beisivka made a high school, so then the 8th grade graduates and the 12th grade graduates would go together into the Rebbe's room. It may have been as many as 15 girls, 20 girls max. And the Rebbe gave them a brach. Then they made a seminary, so there were three more girls who went into the Rebbe's room. But at some point, there were more girls than the Rebbe's room could hold. So the Rebbe said, okay, we'll move the speech, the bracha to the graduates to the shul. 
And once they moved into the shul, all the women would attend. So at the end of every school year, the Rebbe spoke to the women. And the girls are sitting in the periphery, the balabostas, the Rebbetsons are sitting over on, but that sikha was actually to the girls. And it served two purposes. It was a graduation speech. You know, the whole idea that graduation is not an end, it's a beginning, as you all know. And it was also a pitch for the summer. The Rebbe spoke to the girls about being counselors and how important it is and how holy it is and how much the experience of being a counselor of campers for a very short time, for a month or for two, uh, could literally change children's lives. So these were the three times the year that Rebbe always spoke to the women, always, without exception. Often there would be a fourth, I wouldn't say often, from time to time the Rebbe would give a fourth, like in Nun Bay's 1992, uh, I don't want to call it the year of the stroke, but it is the year of the stroke. After Tishrei, the Rebbe asked to see the women a second time. I'll get to that when I get to it in Mitzah Hashem. So this is number three. The third thing that we have to share in preparation for Rosh Hashanah is uh, that the Rebbe spoke to the women. Number four is Slichas. Right, this year we have the maximum Slichas could be. Why? Because Rosh Hashanah is Monday night to Tuesday. Right, Rosh Hashanah could be Sunday night to Monday, Monday night to Tuesday, Wednesday night to Thursday, or Friday night to Shabbos. But Rosh Hashanah cannot be Sunday, Rosh Hashanah cannot be Wednesday, Rosh Hashanah cannot be Friday. So if Rosh Hashanah occurs on Thursday or Shabbos, you have shorter slichas. If Rosh Hashanah occurs Monday or Tuesday, last year it was Monday, you have longer slichas. This year Rosh Hashanah is Tuesday, Monday night. Which means you have nine days of slichas, or eight days of slichas. You have a whole week, Sunday to Friday, and then again Sunday and Monday. So it's a maximum slichas. So Shabbos slichas is this week. Pashat Kisave, right? This Shabbos is slichas, even though it's not Shabbos Mavarchim. Shabbos is next Shabbos, but this Shabbos we're going to start saying Slichas. Now the custom of Slichas is like this. The, the first night, the first Slichas is dead at 1 o'clock in the morning. That's our custom. Now of course, Baruch Hashem, the world is very modern and very sophisticated and very educated and very enlightened. So people do 10 o'clock at night, whatever it is, it's better for the band and better for the Chazonim and better for the people who want to go to sleep early. You're supposed to do Slichas after midnight. The Kabbalistic reason for this is... The first half of the night is time of Gvura. It's considered the darkest time. Of the 24 hours of the day, from midday till midnight is Gvura, from midnight till midday is Chesed. So from 12 o'clock in the afternoon till sunset is Gvura, from sunset till midnight is even darker Gvuras. That's why you don't say till midnight, till midnight. You don't know Tereshbiksav until midnight. Midnight, the Chesed Chazal is a Chuchal Chesed. Even though it's dark, it's a time of Chesed. So the meaning is, they do Slichas at night, Bashkama, early in the morning, after midnight. And basically the idea is we're showing the Abish that how serious we are, we're doing it as early as we can, we're waking up in the middle of the night, or as it is in most of our cases, we're not going to sleep. Okay, but midnight starts Slichas. So 12, 1 o'clock in the morning with Slichas Metzai Shabbos. Beginning with that Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and this year Sunday and Monday, Slichus was fartog. It wasn't at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. It would be before my times, and I, this is what I heard from people, at 5.30 in the morning, when Lubavitch was still normal, but that's like ancient history, yeah? By the time I was growing up, <laughs> Slichus was very early. It was 7 o'clock in the morning, which is like in the middle of the night for us, yes? After the Rebetzin passed away, Rebetzin Chaim Mushka, for reasons that are, have to do with logistics, they got, the, the Maskirim decided to make Slichus 9 o'clock. They just felt it's easier for the Rebbe that Tzlichus shouldn't be at 7, it'd be 9 o'clock in the morning. So that's what it was. But the Rebbe actually wrote a note really upset 
about the fact that slichas is supposed to be early, early in the morning, and they're making slichas essentially three hours into the day. But he never asked to change it. <laughs> he complained about it, but after Memchas, slichas was nine o'clock in the morning. But until then, slichas was seven o'clock in the morning, which is, for Lubavitchers, it's early enough, right? It's still the middle of the night. Um, but I heard that in the early, early, early years, which is before I was born, I don't even know if it's true, slichas was at 5.30 in the morning. But Mitzvah Shabbat, slichas was at one o'clock. Now, in the later years of the Rebbe's Nesiyas, and in the early years of the Shabbos and Vorchim, there was usually a Fabrengen Shabbos Slichas. The Shabbos before Slichas was a Fabrengen. At some point during that Fabrengen, probably every year, certainly most years, the Rebbe would mention, uh, you have to understand how a Fabrengen worked. Fabrengen was the Rebbe sitting basically and talking for a few hours, interrupted by singing and l'chaim, yeah? When the Rebbe talked, sometimes he talked on a topic for a long time. And sometimes he would just move from topic to topic. In one sikha, the Rebbe could say, you know, let's talk about this and this. And the Rebbe would often mention things in passing. You know, just as he was weaving his way through the and he would throw things in. And one of the things that I would throw in at some point during the Fabrengen of Shabbos Slichas is that it's known that by Hasidim, people came to Slichas shaking, or in alternative Yiddish, trembling. Why? It's very simple. Shabbos Slichas, they Fabrengen. By day, Shabbos afternoon. And you say Fabrengen, you miss Tam also, right? When Shabbos ended, the Fabrengen didn't finish, you stay at the one o'clock in the morning. So by the time Slichas came, you were sitting at Fabrengen for many hours and you had many Lechayims. So by the time Slichas started, the mood was kind of energetic. Which means, the Rebbe would always say this. And the Rebbe knew exactly what was going to happen, but it didn't stop from saying it. Um, what the Rebbe was trying to say is get ready for Slichas. And he got ready for Slichas by sitting at Slichas and Fabrengen. The fact that when you sit as a chsidish of Abrengen, you come to Slichas a little bit happy, and Slichas is supposed to be awesome and earnest and serious and, you know, we're focusing on our Avedis, that's really the trademark of chsidim. One of the biggest problems Lubavitchers have, girls, what was one of the biggest problems Lubavitchers have? You know what one of the biggest Lubavitchers have? None of us are afraid of God. We're not afraid that someone's going to punch us in the nose. In many, many from communities, God's a mean, angry guy that you're afraid he's going to punch you in the nose. We're not raised to be afraid of Hashem, and we suffer for it. <laughs> I'm not afraid of Hashem, I can do whatever I want, you love me anyway. And it's true. But this is chesidus. We don't have a, a God of fear, we have a God of love. And our whole avoid is simcha. So even the Yemei even days that are more awesome and more uh, pensive and... and uh, Gvura kind of days, Chassidim always find a way to bring joy into it. So that we would always mention during the Fabreng, not always, but quite often, during the Fabreng and the Shabbos Slichas, so you understand what happened. The Fabreng and the Rebbe finished, the Bacham started the Fabreng, and when you came to 770 at midnight, so the boys were gathering from all over the neighborhood, and it was, 770 was very happy, very, very exciting. And uh, the Rebbe walked in at one o'clock. So until one o'clock, but as it got later, closer, closer to one o'clock, the room was full of people, and there was an energy in the room like Simchas Teda. The energy in 770 before Slichas was so up, it was so positive, it was so energized. And then the Rebbe walked in. Okay, now girls, listen to what I'm about to say. Okay, even if what I'm saying is boring you, listen to this, okay? This is important, I think this is important to know. When I grew up, I was born in 1965, okay? So my memory of 770 as a child of the 70s, the Lamids, and as a Bach of the 80s, the Mems, that's the story of my life. I got married in 1989, 19 Tafshin Nun, okay? When I was a child, 
the Rebbe walked into Shul. It was so quiet, you have no idea. When the Rebbe walked into Daven, when the Rebbe walked into Fabrengen, everyone would stop, stand, and not move. If you watch the films of the Fabrengens, the Fabrengens of the Rebbe from the 80s, and the 70s were the Rebbe, and the 60s and the 50s for sure, the Rebbe would get very quiet. The only noise you would hear is an occasional clanking of a bench. You know, a bench went up, a bench went down. It was very quiet. 770 is a big room. They have a walk pretty fast, but it's a pretty long walk. That feeling had so much respect in it. It had so much awe. It was so powerful. In the 80s, that changed. When the Rebbe would walk in, we would sing. I'm sure the Rebbe was happy about it. But I'm telling you, as someone who experienced both, we lost something. The feeling of the Rebbe walking into shul and everyone standing in their place silently with respect was very compelling. Non-Lubavitchers who would walk into 770 and watch this would say, wow. It was, there was no place in the world where you saw that kind of... It was very powerful, it was very beautiful. It was very awesome. So now imagine 770, the night of Slichus. The room is rocking. And the Rebbe walks in the back door. So until my bar mitzvah year, until I was older, the minute the Rebbe walked into the shul, it got quiet. So we had this, all of this singing and all of this energy, and the Rebbe walked through the shul, it suddenly became very, very, very quiet. And the Rebbe walked through the shul, went up to his place on the bimah, or on the floor, depending on the years, and the chaz would start saying ashrei, and the mood would so radically shift. This incredible simcha was replaced by this great respect and the sense of awe, it was a perfect segue to the Yom Neiraim. In other words, the fact that before Slichas we danced and sang so electric, so excitedly, and then suddenly we stopped. And then when, wherever you were standing, you stayed, you didn't move. And you said Slichas, Slichas only took 45 minutes, not very long. But the mood of Slichas, the awe of Slichas, the seriousness of Slichas was actually heightened. It was made more by the dancing that came before it. Now, in the later years, the Rebbe would walk through the shul and we would continue to sing. They would walk up to his place. He would never, the night of Slichas, the Rebbe never turned around and did this, you know, like you see in the movies. They went to his place, put the Slichas down, and start, open up the Slichas, and again, it was very quiet. So it was a little bit different, but the, the feeling of Yemea Slichas was very palpable. That transition that happened from the singing before to the suddenly stopping and thinking about what's going on and what time of year it was, you felt it, it, it affected everybody. You felt Rosh Hashanah's coming. You felt the awe. It moved you in a very real, in a very concrete way. It put you into a certain frame of mind which set up the fact that Rosh Hashanah is coming very quickly. Okay, that's Slichas. Now, after Matzah Shabbos, like I told you, so again, in my Yoran, in my years that I remember, most of remember, the Rebbe came into Slichas at 7 o'clock in the morning, which is pretty early. Now, during the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it was half an hour, very short. And of Rosh Hashanah, Slichas is an hour. Every Shem Slichas is pushed, it's a lot of pages. And of Rosh Hashanah, Slichas is longer than the first Slichas. The first Slichas took longer because the Chazan sang slower, 45 minutes. But the average Slichas is half an hour, it's not very long. And of Rosh Hashanah, Slichas was an hour. The Slichot, Selichot. Slichas, as they say in Ashkenazit. Okay, now. Um, the next thing on the agenda 
is pidyonis, is panim. Okay? Now, normally, what I would do at this point would be to give you an expose on panim and letters. I usually do it. But I was told that I'm going to have a special class for this. So I'm not doing that with you. I'm not doing that with you. Um, I will get to it IYH, okay? It so I'm just going to tell you what happened by the Rebbe. You all know that you go to the Rebbe, you write a letter, you give a pidgin. And a duch, for those who are concerned, the duch is in the category of a letter. There's a very big difference between a pan and a letter. First of all, a letter you write based on Machdalat on the top and you address it to the Rebbe. To you know, dear Rebbe Shlita or Al Kvegdush Admur, however you want to address it. A pan, you don't write based on Machdalat on the top, you write Pein Nun. Pein Nun stands for Pidye Nefesh, the redemption of the soul. A pan is a, the difference between a Pidye Nefesh and a letter and a duch is that a pan is an ashama document. When you write a pidyon nefesh, the only thing that really matters is your name and your mother's name. My name is Yosef Yitzchak, my mother's name is Rachel. Yosef Yitzchak and Rachel, everything else is gravy. But make sure to write the names correctly. <laughs> I can tell you stories that will give you goose pimples wow. about people writing wrong names. And the Rebbe said, this is your name? And you would say, yeah, and this is your name? And you would say, yeah, and then 20, 30, 40 years later, you'd find out you had the Rebbe wrong name. I'll tell you. I'll tell you all these stories when we get to it. You got to make sure you write all the names and the mother's names correctly in a pan. It's very important. Okay, the details we'll talk about. I'm giving you a special class on letters and potatoes. That's where they gave me instructions. When we get to that class, I'll try my best. I'll try my best. All I can do to answer all your questions. I want to stick to the topic. Not now. I'll tell you later. If you're scared, you can go outside to the store. I'll tell you when the spooky part comes, I'll let you go outside. <laughs> and when the spooky part finishes, we'll invite you back. No, <laughs> well, we have holes in the roof. You can't do anything about it. Okay, unless somebody wants to go up and cover the roof. But okay, so, so the tradition is, you don't write a pan always. A pan you write, you know, when your birthday, you write a pan. We write a pan, Yud Shvat, Kimmel Tammuz, Yudalf Nissen. Before Rosh Hashanah, everybody writes a pidgin. Everybody. Before Rosh Hashanah, everybody writes a It's a very important thing. And this is true not just in Chabad. In all Hasidic circles, you write a pidyon to give nefesh. And for some reason, I don't know the reason why, the Rebbe took pidyon only from men. Women who were not married, or who whatever reason didn't have a man in their lives, would bring a pidyon to the mosquitoes. They would write a pidyon and bring it to the Rebbe, but they didn't have the opportunity to hand it to the Rebbe. Lekach, for example, the Rebbe gave to men and women. The truth is, Matzah didn't give to women. Keshe didn't give to women. Dollars, once dollars started, there was no difference in women at all. They would give dollars to men, they would dollars to women, dollars to children. They would give the kutresim, the maimorim, to men, women, and babies. Newborn children got tanyas from the Rebbe, right? They're exactly going to learn it. Uh, but Lekach, the Rebbe gave men and women. Pidyenis was only men. So if you, you know, your father wrote for you, your husband wrote for you, or you got somebody else to give the Rebbe's opinion, or you would bring it into the secretariat. But the Rebbe took pidyanus. Now a pidyan is a piece of paper with money in an envelope. And girls, one of the things which is truly staggering about our Rebbe is that probably till 1986 or 87, till till the last years, the Rebbe opened every envelope himself. Nobody helped the Rebbe. It wasn't like the President of the United States where you wrote him a letter and somebody else read it. Every piece of mail that came into 770, the Rebbe opened himself. Which is why we were always told that if you're not putting a letter in the mail, don't seal the envelope. Because it literally took time for the Rebbe to, the Rebbe had one of those mechanical machines, you know, if you slice the top, that would slice, 
pull out the letter and read it, the Rebbe would not throw a piece of paper away, the Rebbe would save all the flaps of envelopes and use them as scrap. The Rebbe, with his exactitude, could drive you nuts. The Rebbe saved every piece of paper. Huh? How? That's why he's a Rebbe, man. He's only one woman, girl, only one Rebbe. How was there time? The Rebbe, Benjamin Klein client told me, the Rebbe got an average 400 letters a day. It's not 400 letters a day. He opened every one himself. Nobody helped it up with his mail. In 86, 87, the Rebbe gave permission for people to open up the letters and cut off the bottoms of the pages because if there's pages, <laughs> Rebbe he would save, if you wrote a letter and didn't fill the whole page, they would cut off the bottom and save it as a scrap because Baltashkas, it's a big Aveda. The Rebbe's exactness in Avoida was not normal. The Rebbe saved every envelope. Well, there's a story with Rebbe saving stamps and giving to a stamp collector. A little girl was a collector of stamps. The Rebbe used to send her stamps. She would save the stamps and give it to the girl in the mail. But the Rebbe opened every piece of mail himself. A pan is an envelope with a, with a note and money. Officially, the Rebbe had to have a chance to open every one of these envelopes before Rosh Hashanah so that he could read them in Rosh Hashanah. I understand this. I've heard different things from different secretaries. I understand that the Rebbe did not necessarily open up all the Pedianis before Rosh Hashanah. But the Rebbe had to take the money out, and the money, if it was cash, it went in one pile, if it was checks, someone had to take him to the bank, to deposit them. I mean, depositing the Rebbe's checks was a full-time job. The Rebbe got hundreds of checks a day that had to be deposited. And the Rebbe had many different accounts for different tzedakahs, and you had to keep them all separate. It was a very responsible and earnest job, the way the Rebbe managed stock of money. It's, it's, it's a very, it's not a simple, a simple person cannot handle the different kinds of tzedakahs that the Rebbe had to handle. And they did the Pajanus. So way back when, the tradition was that Erev Rosh Hashanah, which was one of the few days of the year that Rebbe Davim with dominion, as I'll explain to you later, around 10.30 in the morning, they opened the door, wearing his gatl, his Shabbos Dikas silk kapota in his hat, and people filed by, and that he had, you just literally handed the Rebbe your pigeon for the new year. Uh, one of the stories of 770 is the story of the lions. One of the things that you will never experience, unless you go to the oil and Gimel Tamas, is I guess that's a good example of that, yeah? Is the story of the lions. I always tell people, you know, you can imagine getting a dollar from the Rebbe. You can even get a dollar from the Rebbe. What you cannot do is wait for it. We waited for those dollars for three hours in the pouring rain, in the boiling hot sun. And the girls always went first, by the way. It was not fair. Especially when it was raining. <laughs> Five more women, they stopped the men's line, the women, I mean, it was the right thing to do. But I remember standing in front of the Rebbe's house so long. By the time I went in, I was mamish a sponge. My clothing was so wet. I just threw it through moisture. I walked into the house, every step, you could see the floor. And, uh, you waited, the waiting in line was a very important part of, so but imagine waiting in line for four hours and you have five seconds with the Rebbe. Not that you waited for nine for four, four hours and you have two minutes. Five seconds. All that waiting made you nuts. And then you had to somehow get present. When you walk up to the Rebbe for those few seconds to be there, it was, it, it was a very important part of the experience, was the waiting in line. The worst line was the line for matzahs. There were literally two lines, a front line and a back line. So the matzah line, the Rebbe stopped early. The Rebbe stopped, after the Rebbe's heart attack, the Rebbe stopped giving matzah to everybody. He would give it to the koilo. The next two lines were Keshel Bracha and Lekach. They were both, they were, they were, they were quicker than matzah, but they took time. When they ever gave you Lekach, I'll talk about it later, he would look at you and decide what you deserve and literally break a honey cake in half, hand it to you with, with his fingers in your hand. Girls also, no napkin, no gloves, you understand? By the time the Rebbe was done, his fingernail was 
honey. But he would give you a piece or a half a piece or a piece and a half. He would look at each person, man, woman, and child, and decide how much honey cake. He knew everybody. So if you were married, you got a piece and a little piece. If you were bucket, you got a piece. If you were a god, you got a half a piece. And they would waste his time breaking pieces. In the last years, they put them in plastic bags. They would just give you a bag with a dollar. It saved a lot of time. We'll get the honey cake when we get the honey cake. The fastest line by far was Pedianus. They would line up from 770 down to Brooklyn, up Brooklyn till President, I think, and President till Kingston, and sometimes all the way around, like a gadrel. All those people can go through in 20 minutes. You're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people, very quick. Because Pedianus was taking, it wasn't giving, it was very, very fast. And there's films of it. I gave the Rebbe Pidyan many times. And it's very hard for me to, I, I feel so bad about all the opportunities that I missed and the lack of attention that I paid. But the Rebbe would stand by his door, taking Pedianus, the whole time he's speaking. And by the way, you tried talking it over and over again. And he would say, again and again and again. But he said it so fast, the line went so fast, that you got half a bracha and the next person got the other half a bracha. In other words, so if, if you were one of those really, really aware chsidim, you said, okay, what did the Rebbe tell me this year? I'm going to have a good year or a sweet year, you know? One person got next person got the Shana Tevim Sukkah. That's how fast the line it was. Very, very fast. And then would collect them between his thumb and his, well, I don't know what this finger, the pointing finger, and with the, huh? Index. Index finger, he put them down. But you could see even in the films, as people behind the Rebbe, some of them he put here, some of them he put here, some of them he put here, and you could see that as the Rebbe took your pigeon, he was reading it. He didn't have to open the, the as he took your pigeon, the way he collected the pigeonus, how he treated every person was different. And in the taking the pigeonus alone, in the taking the pigeonus alone, you could feel how uh, something was going on. He wasn't just collecting envelopes. In other words, giving the Rebbe a pigeon was not a formality. By giving the Rebbe a pigeon, you handed whatever pigeon nefesh you had to the Rebbe in such a way that at that instant, there was some kind of an exchange. Now later, of course, the Rebbe would open the envelope, take the money out, and read the pigeon, and save the envelope. But this was a secondary event. The first event was handing the Rebbe the pigeon nefesh. There was an additional tradition, which, as I always tell the girls, I do not know when this started. Um, but I don't think it goes back to the times of the Alter Rebbe. I think it only goes back to the times of the Friedrich Rebbe, but I'm not sure. I should really ask Michal Zelikson. Every time I'd say this, i say, okay, ask Michal Zelikson, and then I don't ask him, and there we go again. I think it's not about Friedrich Rebbe. It's called a pan kloli, a general pan. A pan kloli was a nusach, which was written by the Gaboyim. A pan kloli had two purposes. Number one, the whole world was giving the Rebbe pedienes. What about the Rebbe himself? What about who's giving opinion for the Rebbe? So Hasidim gave the Rebbe opinion for the Rebbe. That was the first reason they made a pan kloli. And I think, our, I think, without knowing that our Rebbe started during the time of the Friedrich Rebbe and it became a tradition. Number two, there was a period of time that many, many Hasidic Chabad, our brothers and sisters, in other words, not Stamgin, but Anash, were living in the Soviet Union, were lost in Europe, and we're simply not physically in a position to send a pigeon. So it was decided, and again, I think it was decided by our Rebbe, that they should give the Rebbe a pigeon nefesh on behalf of Yidin overseas, especially those Yidin overseas who found themselves in Bameitzer or Bashivya behind the Soviet Union, or in prisons, or in gulags, or in camps, to give the Rebbe a pigeon. So it became a tradition about a pan kloli. 
The rule of the Pan Kloli was that all of us would sign on the Pan Kloli and we would give money to contribute to the Pan Kloli and then the Rebbe would take it all and the Rebbe would read the Nusikh but you had to be married. So I only signed on two or three or four. I got married Tafshin Nun. So the first time I was allowed to sign on Pan Kloli was Tafshin Nun Aleph, Nun Beis, Nun Gimel, Nun Dalit. I probably signed on Pan Kolium after that. And then, hey, I don't know how many years I did it. Um, but you had to be married. And on top there was a standard nusach, and then you would write, there was big, big pages. And you write your name, and your wife's name, and your children's name, and of course you were very careful to write all the names, Bas or Ben, your mother's name, was the Pidyan Nefesh. And during that Erev Rosh Hashanah, as the Rebbe was taking Pidyanus, the Gaboyim would walk in, the line would stop, and they would hand the Rebbe the pan. It was a lot of pages, with a lot of names, and a big envelope full of money. They would take it. They would read the type Nusach on the top. And then he would say, I'm sorry that I'm not reading all the names now. It's hard to make people to wait, and so on and so forth. And he would give a bracha. It was a standard tradition that the Rebbe would read the pan, and he would give a bracha. Then he would continue uh, the line of Pajinus. Now, because I need to say one more thing, and then I'll let you speak, because i got two minutes. By the time I was a bracher, the crowd of people was so large that if the Rebbe had collected in his Erev Rosh Hashanah, it would take him a very long time, an hour and a half, two hours, a long time. And Erev Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe went to the oil. It was a very, very busy day, Erev Rosh Hashanah. So they would ask us, all of Chassidim, if you're in Crown Heights, do not wait till Erev Rosh Hashanah to write your pidyon. Give the Rebbe the pan after Slichas. So Motzah Shabbat Slichas, this year it's Pashat Kisavei, Right, today is, today is Monday, so it's five days hence, at a quarter to two in the morning. Mamish, in the middle of the night, the Rebbe finished saying Slichas. He went up to his room, the Rebbe's door would open, and if you were able to write a pan that night, you would line up, you'd walk over to the Rebbe, and you'd give it the Rebbe the pidyan. And the Rebbe would say the same thing. Usually, there would be two times, besides for Ere Rosh Hashanah, when you're able to hand the Rebbe the pidyan. The first was Matzah uh, Shabbos. And I think Tuesday, Gimel the Slichis, which is a date that's very important in Chabad, no one's exactly sure why. The third day of Slichis, which is Tuesday morning, they're able to take, again, Pidyonis, and they asked everybody else, wait till the, only the people come from out of town should give Pidyonis Erev Rosh Hashanah. Now, the next thing on my agenda is the forbidding of Erev Rosh Hashanah. You'll remind me and I'll tell it to you. What was your question or comment? Um, the thing for the, when they said they wrote a poem for the Lord, is that like, they wrote the Rebbe's name. I don't think so. They wrote, that much. they wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe should have a good year. However, they... Uh, okay. I don't think they wrote the Rebbe's name. No, I don't think the Rebbe's name. Go ahead. There was a poem for I didn't want to do one more. Right. They didn't necessarily know those people. Of course not. Right? Of course they didn't. It was just an honor of them? Yeah, for all the Yidden in the world, basically. Especially when I was growing up, it was for Yidden in Russia. It was complicated. Anash in Russia who couldn't send a pidgin. So they would say, the Yidin who find themselves behind the Iron Curtain by Motzor Bashivi were not free to write a Pidyan Nefesh. So honor later, Rachma, Rachma Vuram, that the Rebbe should have made a Rachma for them. Yes, absolutely. Of course. And during the Second World War, when they handed those Pidyanus to the Fiyidike Rebbe, you understand that those Pidyanus were saturated with tears. Okay, shall we break? Yeah.